He's risen. risen Our text this morning on this Easter Sunday comes from John chapter 20, the first 22 verses. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she ran and came to Simon Peter, the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they've laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb, weeping as she wept. She stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had laid. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And she didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and she said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. And then that same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, when the disciples were assembled for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. It's the Easter weekend, the highest point on the church calendar. As David said during the call to worship, it's the apex, the center. Oh, and my inner race car driver just loved that metaphor of the apex. Right in the center of all redemption history. This Easter weekend is the high celebration of the church. It's like pulling back the drapes to wake a child from their sleepy stupor or a teenager from their sleepy stupor. The gospel comes to you and it just drowns out the chronic, disappointing news that 
plagues our day-to-day lives, and it announces good news. It's like turning the sub to 11. We all have a common enemy, the common enemy of death, and Jesus Christ our Lord has defeated death. The good news of this gospel that we celebrate, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. And we just sit and we bask in it every Easter. There is a uh, composer named Peter Schaefer. He wrote a piece called Amadeus. And he was kind of this cynical old guy, kind of contrasting the things that he had written, his compositions, the telling and retelling of the stories of heroes to stale and tedious music. And he contrasts his work with the work of Mozart. And he says, Mozart takes characters off the street, barbers and chambermaids, and with his music he makes them into gods and heroes. And I, with my stale and tedious music, I've made gods and heroes into the ordinary. Christians, we believe in the phenomenal, that at the core of our faith is the historical Resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to minimize Jesus Christ as just a guy that we follow his moral teachings and we're going to kind of not talk about the phenomenal stuff. We're just going to live in the land of ethics and morality is to take the God and the hero and make him into the ordinary. Or rather we just bask in the wonder of Resurrection Sunday. This huge celebration that we enjoy that God has given us in scripture easter eggs since genesis pointing forward to this glorious day when Jesus Christ would defeat would defeat death itself and i want to briefly say for those of you who've joined us this morning exploring christian faith I, you know i'm cognizant that easter is a time where those who are exploring spirituality may come and visit churches and so maybe that's you today i just want to briefly mention two things because we're going to really focus our morning on the third thing, as the church is gathered to celebrate. The first thing is, I just want to briefly make a comment about the cause of the cosmos. Secondly, the course of history, but we're going to spend most of our time this morning celebrating the compassionate king. Firstly, the cause of the cosmos. If you're here today exploring Christian faith, this is probably a tremendous hurdle for you because you're probably grappling with the resurrection, this phenomena that's outside of the laws of nature, that from our point of view as humans is like, well, this is this inconceivable thing. I just can't wrap my mind around it. This is my sticking point for Christianity. I like Jesus, the lover of the underdog and the one that cares for the poor and the widow and the refugee, but it's the resurrection that I have a ha- I got a problem with. Can I just encourage you to say we actually have some common ground? That you believe that the cause of the cosmos is that the universe spun itself into existence for no reason. That phenomenon is, according to you and your worldview, all life coming from lifelessness. Everything that is coming from everything that was not. So if you believe that the cosmos was spun into existence for no reason, you and I already believe in the phenomenon of all life coming from death. That at some point, material became sentient. That at some point, life came from lifelessness. We're already on that same page. It's just that I believe that the cause behind all of the cosmos is the God of all creation who infuses the human spirit with a sense of purpose and meaning because we are created in the loving 
image of our Creator. Our world is broken, no doubt about it. But Jesus Christ is God incarnate who came in human flesh to reunite us with our God. And it is that sort of insatiable hunger and craving of the human soul that even if you sort of intellectually satisfy yourself with the idea of a purposeless cosmos, you, may, may, you might get there intellectually, but it's not emotionally and psychologically satisfying. There's something deeper. It says, I'm not satisfied with knowing I came from nothing and in the end there is nothing. And in between, I just make everything you know, matter for some reason. There's a dislocation there that is psychologically dissatisfying. I'm just saying to you, we actually have common ground. We believe in the phenomena of life coming from lifelessness. Secondly, the course of history. And when we look at the course of history, again, Christian faith is not grounded in like a, a missing body theory. It's grounded in something that happened in human history. And that what we find that happened in human history is that even though there are benefits of Christian faith, like hope and joy and a sort of a centeredness and an assurance of the future that anchors us, these things are beautiful and we experience these things. But Christian faith is not founded on experience. It's founded on something that is true. It's not true because I choose to believe it's true. I believe it because historically it is true. Throughout the course of history, what you find right in the beginning, the foundation of the faith is the hinge of Resurrection Sunday. That in 33 AD in human history, on the Roman cross, under the leadership of Pontius Pilate, Jesus Christ was crucified and three days later this tomb was empty and all of history agrees that it was empty. And all four gospel records record this and the thing that's mystifying is that we have the same amount of accounts of Jesus Christ for as we do for Tiberius Caesar, the greatest leader in the history of the Roman Empire, an empire that lasted a thousand years. We have as much data on this guy from a backwater town that nobody would have even cared about called Bethlehem as we do as one of the greatest leaders of Roman history. And what should have happened, if this was just a theory, is that it should have been laughed out of Rome, but Christianity exploded and, and permeated Rome. One of the greatest theories around the empty tomb is that, well, the body was stolen. But as you read through the Gospels, and we read it this morning, you find that the disciples are hiding for their lives. They're not, like, plotting to steal a body. It's not like Jesus 11 in the great heist. Like, this isn't what was happening at all. And it's thoroughly embarrassing. Thoroughly embarrassing. No self-respecting Jew or Roman or Greek would ever follow the teachings of these people. Because the literature is constructed in a way that would have been repulsive. The Jews didn't believe God could be a man. The Romans and the Greeks believed that if there was a spirituality, you were trying to escape your physical bodies. And Jesus comes back, the resurrected Christ, in a physical body. So that's not attractive. And further, he was crucified on a cross. Of course, today, cross is jewelry. But at the time, it was disgusting. We don't get tattoos of, of gallows and, and, and lynchings. That's abhorrent. But at the time, this is what the cross was. So there's nothing in the literature that would have provoked the explosion of Christianity in ancient Rome. But if you consult the history books, it's precisely what happened. And further, we see here in the text that we read this morning, the very first witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is Mary. The very first witnesses of the resurrection are women. Now there's a lot of glorious theological full circle that God is doing here. In that there's a glorious dignity that's given to women where we find that in the beginning in the garden that, that Eve chooses to be her own God and forsake God and, and chooses to eat of the fruit in the, an act of rebellion and divine treason against God. And here now there is this redemptive, beautiful, beautiful redemptive circle as God is receiving women 
But culturally and historically speaking, if you were just trying to start a movement, if you were just trying to say, hey, let's just you know, start, a, start a legend and mess with Rome because we hate totalitarian rule, let's sort of rage against this, this big machine, and let's say that Jesus rose from the grave. If you were writing this, you're not going to say that the first witnesses were women. You're not going to say that the women told the men that they saw the resurrected Christ and the men didn't believe and they were hiding for their lives. This is an honor-shame culture. Nobody's going to believe this. Women's testimony wasn't even valid in court. Direct quote from the Babylonian Talmud. It is better that the words of the law be burnt than put in the hands of a woman. That's the culture that they lived in. In the second century, Tacitus wrote of women, you can't believe the testimony of women because women are hysterical. I know that that is abhorrent and offensive, but I just need you to sit in the reality that all four gospel writers are like, this is what happened. This is how it went down. So from a historical sociological point of view, we all have to just sit and pause and marvel at the fact that Christianity was not laughed out of Rome. It exploded and permeated Rome. And every other nation. There isn't one culture that can lay claim to Christianity. So if you're exploring Christian faith, I hope you'll just consider those two things. I'm going to stop there. But I might have opened a can of worms and now you got all kinds of questions. Reach out to me. I'll have coffee with you. I'd be happy to sit down and let's talk about this. Because we don't check our brains at the door to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the lens through which we understand all of life and the deepest cravings and longings of the human soul. In fact, it brings what it is to be human into a beautiful and powerful congruence. I'd be happy to talk to you about that more. Let's spend the rest of our morning this, uh, this glorious Easter celebrating our compassionate King, Jesus Christ, the Lord of creation, who rose from death to bring recreation, God's plan from the beginning. The resurrection opens a door that nobody can shut. The resurrection event is an inauguration. It is the assurance that we have that God will restore the material. It is the exaltation that follows the disgusting humiliation of the cross. It is the vindication of Christ leading us into a further vindication of his ascension that we we celebrate on Ascension Day. And this teaches us that our Christian faith is not an escape from the material world, but the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ promises the restoration of this material world, which is precisely what the human soul wants. We want bodies that don't break down and get sick and die. We want civilization that is in a love and a glorious unity and care. We want our cultures and our cities to reflect the beautiful unity. And that is all coming, the resurrection and the, and the return of Jesus Christ. And this gives us tremendous hope and assurance that it is all true. That it will all happen according to God's plan. In verse 12, the apostle describes, John describes what Mary sees in a striking way. I love the humanness of the way that the Bible is written. Did you catch some of the the very human things? You know, there's a foot race and John just wants us all to know he's faster than Peter. I don't know why he put that detail in there. But apparently it was important to John. In the garden, you know, the other Gospels just recorded like, you know, one of the disciples took out a sword and attacked those that came to arrest Jesus. But John's like, it was Peter! He just put it right out there. The Gospels are really human. The Holy Spirit superintended all of Scripture, of course. Dual authorship. This is our theology. But there's a glorious 
humanness to the way that, it, that, the, that these scriptures are recorded. It gives us great assurance that these are eyewitness accounts, all the details. The cloths are lying down, but they saw the cloth around his head. It was not, it was not with the others. It's not how you write poetry. That's how you record history. And Mary sees something. This glorious Easter egg from the Old Testament. She sees these angels at the head and the foot of the place where the body of Jesus lay. In the Old Testament, as you read through the temple, you find that there is a piece of furniture called the mercy seat. And the priest would go into the mercy seat and he would sprinkle blood. He would sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was, a, was about the length of a man. And carved into the head and the foot of a mercy seat were two cherubs. And the angels were staring down on the mercy seat. And here Mary looks in and she sees the ultimate mercy seat with angels at the head and the foot staring down at the blood of the ultimate lamb, the great sacrifice, the greater than the temple, the great high priest, looking at the culmination of all of salvation's history. And she's looking at it and she sees it in this, uh, uh, this epic moment of Jesus Christ once and for all sacrifice for all of our sin as our tribute. The Bible reveals that God is not some cosmic ogre that's out for blood. He is this glorious God. It's an epic love story of the God that loves his wayward creation, loves his wayward children, pays our ransom by shedding his own blood. And then in verse 15, we get another glorious Easter egg. When Jesus appears to Mary, it all happens in the garden. And I've been touching on this the last couple of weeks leading up to Easter for us to just sit in the gravitas of all of this. She thinks he's the gardener. It says it. She thinks he's the gardener. She thinks he's the one in charge of the garden. Interesting. This should make us think of somebody else who is in charge of a garden. The verbs that describe Adam in Genesis, the work of Adam and Eve in Genesis, it says God took the man and he put him in the garden to tend and keep it. Those verbs, took, put, tend, keep, in Hebrew, are priestly duties. So Adam was not a gardener, he was a priest. The garden was not a community garden. It was a temple. It was the meeting place of where God and civilization met. And that's where this whole thing is going. The resurrection and the, re- and the restoration of all things with the return of Christ. And so here we've got Jesus in the garden. The first Adam failed miserably by a tree. The second Adam gloriously redeems all of us on a tree. The first Adam fails miserably in a garden. Jesus Christ, the second Adam is resurrected and brings redemption in a garden. In the book of Genesis, we see that God intended for us to enjoy life with him. And here in this garden tomb, we see that the sun has restored our ability to be reconnected with him. And in the book of Revelation, we will ultimately enjoy life with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, which is poetically described as that garden city. And between now and then, our world groans. In all of our lives, in all of our families, in all of our vocations, there are all things across this room that make all of us groan. The deepest longings are coming, my friends. The resurrection is the fulfillment of humanity's deepest cry. Not evacuation, restoration. All of humanity groans as humanity goes through our news feeds. If news feeds had a voice, the voice would be, Oh... The resurrection is the beautiful recovery of what God intended in the beginning. And we all contend with sorrow and injustice and pain because the sin-ridden old creation is still rumbling on. 
But the resurrection and the new life has broken through. It has come. The satisfying certain physical sign. That God will ultimately deal with sorrow and pain and darkness. He will restore and recreate this world and raise us from death to enjoy it. Now, sidebar. This was very interesting to the ancient Greeks and Romans. In the book of Acts, when Paul shows up in Athens, he says to the polytheistic culture, Men of Athens, I perceive you to be very religious. And he goes on and he gives a tremendous speech. And if you are in Athens, there is a huge stone where Paul's speech is carved in Greek into the rock. And I remember standing there and enjoying that moment, saying, man, this is epic. This is where it all happened. He stood, I I made sure I stood on all the steps so that I knew I had to have stood on the step that Paul was on. I stood on all the steps. So I definitely stood where he stood. And he stood there and he said, men of Athens, I perceive you to be very religious. And after he spoke of the resurrection and the bodily resurrection, some of them said, you're drunk. Just like some of you today will leave here and say, I'm never going back to Redeemer again. He's drunk. But others like some of you today, will say, I will hear you again on this matter. And the reason they said, I will hear you again on this matter, is because they, they couldn't conceive that life after death wasn't Plato's version and Plutarch's version of the afterlife, which was basically being stardust, which, let's face it, humans aren't really that jazzed about. What we care about, really care about, is being human. What we enjoy, really enjoy, our lakes and mountains and sunsets and cliffs and friends and coffee and good food and choice wine. That's what we're about. That's what we want to grip onto forever. And so when Paul started talking about the resurrection of all things, and you read through the resurrection narratives of Jesus, and he's doing things like eating breakfast on the beach, eating fish, looking at the sea, the resurrected Jesus, all of a sudden you get a very physical, visceral reality to the Christian faith that the Greeks said... Okay, now I'm interested in that. Because this world of mine, it's beautiful and full of sorrow. It is definitely broken. And we are homeless utopians. We can't fix it. We keep trying to nudge it in loving and kind directions. But because the problem is not outside us, the problem is inside us, we just keep on nudging it back in sorrowful and terrible directions. So we must trust in Christ, the wise king, who will return and restore all things. As various authors have expressed, Christians are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. And in verse 6, Jesus calls Mary and he silences her fears with hope and peace. Her Redeemer lived and Jesus continually calls you and I. And he silences our fear with hope and peace because our Redeemer lives. And like a criminal walking out of the jail cell after they serve their time, Jesus emerges three days after paying the Christ for atoning of all, the atoning of all of humanity's crimes. And he comes out of this tomb. On the cross he cried out, it is finished, paid in full. And here we see that the Father stamps a cross of all of the universe. Yes, it is paid in full in a way that is not easily missed. You can go anywhere on the planet and draw a cross in the sand and people will know exactly what you're talking about. And for those who conceive of these ideas, yeah, but what about the region where nobody's ever heard of God? And what about that? And what about that? We've got a long track record, starting in Genesis, of God revealing himself to people. So I, there's no doubt in my mind, any of us have conceived of a, of a means by which God is incapable of revealing himself in a saving way to people. We have a God of grace who has moved heaven and earth since the beginning to draw us back to be in union with him. To borrow from J.R. Tolkien, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not simply one more great story pointing to some underlying reality. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is the underlying reality to which all resurrection narratives point. All human beings, we all have a fascination of the idea of escaping time, escaping death, escaping sickness, escaping sorrow, escaping injustice, having communion with all living things, being able to live long enough to achieve our artistic and creative and vocational dreams, using all of our gifts to the fullest, being able to find a love that perfectly heals. Why do we have all these longings? We have them because eternity has been written in our hearts, Ecclesiastes 3 says. That's why we have them. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ unites us back to the the source of those longings, our loving God and Heavenly Father. Jesus says in verse 17 to Mary, don't cling to me. (laughs) In the Greek, stop clinging, which is more accurate. You can imagine it. She says... My teacher! And she's hugging him and she's squeezing him. And he's like, okay, stop clinging to me. In other words, but wait, there's more. The coming of his spirit. The things that he must do is he wants to ascend to his his father and send the spirit. Which now you and I are on the other side of this, of course. And so this begs the question, how do we live as Easter people in this temporary, fragile life? Ah, we live with this love and joy. Long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Able to do so because we believe this life is quite simply not all that there is. And this gives us a tremendous amount of confidence and humility with which we go and love and care for our city and see ourselves as ministers in our city. He has defeated the grave. In verse 22, he breathes on his disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. This makes us think of creation. He is the God of recreation. The God who breathed life into his beloved creation is breathing new life of recreation. The resurrection shows us us this glorious truth. To borrow from C.S. Lewis, the resurrection life will work backwards and turn every agony into glory. And so now, this cross, this empty tomb, this is the form of God's love towards us. And it is the fuel for our love towards one another and towards our city. The resurrection was just as inconceivable the day it happened as it is today. But the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead that day quickens our hearts and minds to live in light of it. Today, Jesus anticipated this. He knew this. He saw this. He prophesied this. Long before this happened, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though they die, shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray.